Well, my greatest privilege every week is to stand before you on the Lord's Day and to open my Bible and to preach the Word of God. I delight in, in that opportunity. So I ask you to turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, as we are making our way out of this chapter, there's a part of me that, that is ready to get on to the next section, but there's a part of me that just doesn't want to leave. Because Paul's instructions here to us concerning the doctrine of Christian liberty and answering these questions about meats that are offered unto idols has been so pertinent. And I trust that uh, there is still yet for us to learn. Um, Sometimes I I read the text and I think, well, Paul, you're kind of just saying the same thing in a little bit of a different way. How will I find something new to preach? But yet there are new things to preach and there are new things to learn. And so we trust that... um, Our God will teach us today as well. Uh, Though this text uh, from verse 25 down through verse 1 of chapter 11 is really uh, the same consistent train of thought for the sake of time uh, and to do justice to the text, I'm going to break that up into two messages. So I'm going to preach today part 1 of 2, the limitation of our liberties. The limitation of our liberties. Let me read our text. I'm just going to get down to verse 30 today in chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go... Whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, and not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker... Why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? As Christians, we often have such a skewed perception of what mature Christianity looks like. We have this idea that the most mature Christian is the one who makes the most bold and free use of his liberties because he's been enlightened and he's been freed from the bondage of legalism. And so he's mature. He's learned that he has the liberty to indulge in life's pleasantries. And we think that Christians who do whatever they want and say whatever they want and listen to whatever kind of music they want and watch whatever kind of movies they want and dress however they want, they're the enlightened ones. They're the strong ones. They have been freed from bondage and we should try to be more like them and we should try to cast off our legalism and on and on. I think you see the point that I'm making. And then those Christians who have a few more scruples about the common aspects of daily life, well, they're just not aware of the liberty that they have in Christ. It's a common viewpoint. And you see that. Sadly, as sad as it is, I think that there are circles that perhaps are a little bit more theologically savvy that they use their theological prowess as a license to indulge in worldliness. 
And sadly, there's other groups that have a hard time spelling theology. And so all of their emphasis is on these internals or these externals. Well, we don't need to fall in either camp. Those Christians that have a few more scruples about the daily aspects of their life, is it that they're ignorant of their liberties? Or is it that they realize that making the full use of their liberties is not always the best thing to do? What if those believers are in actuality the mature Christians because they understand that just because they have the liberty to do something does not necessarily mean they should do it? And that the true mark of Christian maturity is not how you indulge in your liberties, but how you limit them. This was the question that was confronting the Corinthians, and they struggled to wrestle with it. Therefore, Paul spent three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, walking them through the ins and outs of Christian liberty. And he used the Corinthians' questions concerning meats sacrificed to idols to take the church through a comprehensive study of Christian liberty. You ask, what is this section in 1 Corinthians about? Is it about meats sacrificed to idols or is it about Christian liberty? Well, the answer is yes, because the question that, that, that was asked of Paul had to do with meats sacrificed to idols. But Paul says, in order to understand how to answer that question, I've got to teach you about Christian liberty. And as we've been going through these chapters, verse by verse, we've been walking through this lesson with him. And as we come now to the end of chapter 10, Paul is drawing this section of this epistle to a close, and he's putting an exclamation point on all that he's taught thus far. And we will see that he will make some concluding applications to specific scenarios that he hasn't yet covered, and he will restate and he will defend his overarching principle. Now, I want to confess to you that there are some hermeneutical and exegetical challenges in this text. And uh, there was a couple of of nuances here that I really had to spend a lot of time at my desk uh, praying and reading and studying uh, and and, uh, asking, what is he really saying here? I, I, I thought, well, I, you know, I could get up and just give you a, a summary of all the different views, but that's really not preaching. Okay? That, that, it's not preaching to just say, well, here's what Gill believed, and here's what Calvin believed, and here's what Henry believed. Now you go make up your mind. No, uh, I, I want to, with God as my helper, tell you what Paul is saying here. And I'm going to do that with humility, uh, but I, I do believe that there, there are some Nuances in the language that do indicate what he's saying here. And we'll see that as we go along. Paul has already succinctly stated this principle for us. Part one, is, as we'll see, is the principle employed. And then next week we'll see the principle explained. But Paul has already stated this principle for us. He stated it succinctly in verses 23 and 24. And we saw that last time we were in 1 Corinthians together. And you'll remember that we refer to this as the golden rule of the church. And this, this is the overarching principle, the Pauline principle concerning Christian liberties, and it is this. Okay, listen carefully. As believers, we have liberty in Christ to enjoy God's blessings according to his word and to not be bound by the commandments of men. That is what Christian liberty is. If somebody says, what is Christian liberty? And you want to give them a 
one-sentence answer. Christian liberty is the freedom to have your conscience bound by nothing but the Word of God. Now, that's a big misunderstanding. Uh, because a lot of people will do something and they will say, well, this action is my Christian liberty. No, no. Uh, there's no action that is your Christian liberty. Your Christian liberty is to have your conscience unbounded by anything but the Word of God. Uh, to, to, be, to be solely subject to what God has said and to not worry and to not be compelled by the mere commandments of men. Okay, so uh, you could pick any example you wanted to. Um, take, for instance, secular music. That's a, that's a hot debated issue, right? Okay, you could say, well, do I have the Christian liberty to listen to secular music? That's the wrong question. Here's what you have the Christian liberty to do. You have the Christian liberty to evaluate your music choices based only upon the Word of God and not upon what any man has to say about it. That's Christian liberty. So don't say, well, I have the Christian liberty to do this. No, what you have the Christian liberty to do is look to your Bible. And if God is okay with it, and if God is approving of it, then go in peace, right? I want to make that clarification because I hear all the time, whether it's a dress standard or music or entertainment or some sort of uh, recreational activity or whatever the case may be, uh, there will be one side that will say, well, we have the Christian liberty to do this. Well, no, you don't. What you have the Christian liberty to do is to make your decision based upon the Word of God, the Bible, as your sole authority and not a man or a woman for that matter, okay? So that's, that's the first half of Paul's principle, but, but here's really the crux of this principle. That it's not, okay, it's not to be our first concern to assert our liberties and to see how many of them that we can indulge in. Rather, we must be motivated by a selfless love to limit our liberties for the glory of God and the good of others. That's the principle. Paul says, yes, you have Christian liberty. Don't let anyone take away your Christian liberty or rob your Christian liberty. He'll tell that to the Galatians very plainly and very bluntly, those Judaizers uh, that, that are telling you to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws. You have the Christian liberty. You have the New Testament uh, to look there and, and, and conduct yourself according to the word of God, not some Judaizing false teacher. But, Paul says, you are not to take that liberty and use it as a, as a sledgehammer to smash the conscience of your brothers and sisters and, and to indulge in things that are questionable or debatable or worldly. No, you, you are not even to, to seek to indulge in your liberties, but rather you are to seek in... Uh, being motivated by a selfless love that causes you to limit your liberties for the glory of God and the good of others. How did Paul start this section in chapter 8? Chapter 8 and verse 1, he said what? Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And knowledge in that context is what? The knowledge of your liberties. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So uh, if, you, if you say, I know I have the right to listen to that, that music, whatever that music is, and I've looked in the Bible, and I know it's my right, and I can do it, uh, and I don't care about what anybody thinks, I don't care about my brothers and sisters, I don't care about the church, I'm going to do it because I know I have the right to do it. What happened to you was that your knowledge of your liberties caused you to be puffed up, and your behavior is not edifying anyone. Because you have a knowledge divorced 
from love. Well, this is what Paul has been laboring to teach the church at Corinth. And if you summed up the teachings of the last three chapters, what we find here at the end of chapter 10 uh, would be what we would uh, find as Paul's thesis statement concerning Christian liberty, concerning the doctrine of Christian liberty. And now in our text, we find Paul dealing with some miscellaneous applications uh, of, of this ultimate principle before giving his final declaration of it in verses uh, 31 through 11 one of First Corinthians. And, you know, Paul as a preacher and teacher is an opportunist. Uh, he never lets a, a good opportunity to go to waste. So if you come to Paul with a specific scenario or a specific event in mind, not only will Paul give you advice on how to handle that specific event, but he'll give you some principles that you can apply even more broadly. And we're very thankful for that. Uh, by the way, if he didn't do that in this section, it would be very hard to make any sort of relevance to our day and age where we don't really struggle with eating meat sacrificed to idols in 2023 United States of America. Uh, but Paul does not just do that. What he does is he lays out some more broad and general principles that apply much further. So let's look at these specific examples and then take a step beyond and apply them to our own lives. The first of these specific scenarios the, of the, the principle employed, this principle is employed in public markets. Point number one, public markets. Now, it's absolutely crucial that we see Paul's shift in verse 25 from his previous discussion in verses 14 through 22. Uh, earlier in this chapter, Paul unabashedly condemned Christians who attend idolatrous temple feasts. That was what verses 14 through 22 were about. He told the church, do not go in pagan temples and participate in pagan ceremonies involving pagan gods. Do not do it. And when you do, you are communing with demons and you are engaging in gross idolatry. Uh, there is never a situation when such behavior would be lawful for a Christian. And to attempt, as the Corinthians did, to place this under the bounds of their Christian liberty is a severe misunderstanding of Christian liberty and the sin of idolatry. Right? And so Paul dealt with the first half of chapter 10 was really dealing with abuses of our Christian liberty. And how do we abuse our Christian liberty? We take actions and behaviors and we place them under the boundaries of Christian liberty when they don't belong there. They don't belong there. That's how Israel in the Old Testament justified fornication and sexual morality and idolatry and all of those other sins. But now in verse 25, he's dealing with a separate issue. And we need to see that because he's going to give a different answer. And if we don't see the shift, we'll think that Paul's contradicting himself. In verse 25, he's dealing with a different issue, and it's the issue of meats that are sold in the public markets. I'm going to have to explain a little bit of this historical context so that this makes sense to you. But notice in verse 25, the Bible says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles... The King James translate the word that Paul uses here in verse 25 as shambles. And that is an older English word for a butcher's slaughterhouse. Some versions might just say the market, right? Uh, but the King James does this because Paul uses a word in the Greek that's much more specific than the word market. 
Uh, in fact, the Greek word that Paul uses suggests that what he had in mind was a certain kind or even a particular market, a specific store. So instead of using a phrase like, whatsoever is sold at the, the grocery store, it's as if he's saying, whatsoever you go and you buy down at the Walmart at the end of the street on the corner. Now, why am I telling you this? What's the significance in this? Because it tells us that Paul is speaking with regards to a particular store that the Corinthians shopped at. Therefore, this is not a hypothetical scenario. This is something that is a real issue that the church members are trying to sort through. If a, if a store were to open up in Paris and the accusation would come out that they're selling food that was sacrificed to pagan gods, we would all have to wrestle through well, are we allowed to shop there? Do we have the Christian liberty to shop there? Some of the restaurants are so bad in town that I think they're sacrificing their foods to pagan gods, but that's beside the point. <laughs> this is not a hypothetical scenario. Here's what's happening, okay? Put your, put your eyes in, in first century Corinth. The pagans, who were by and large the majority, would offer up an animal in the temple... To a false god. And some of the meat would be consumed. Some of it would be burnt up. Some of it would be eaten in a, in a pagan feast. But after the feast was over. They would take the meat off of the altar. And they would take it down to their local meat market. And they would sell it for a profit. And the Corinthians at the church of Corinth. They did their shopping at this market. But some of them were concerned because they did not know if the meat they were buying was previously used in idolatrous sacrifices. Do you see the moral dilemma that they're faced with? So they said, Paul, what, do we, what should we do? And here's what Paul says. Look at verse 25. He says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Eat it. And, and don't worry about it, is basically what Paul says. Paul's answer to them is that as Christians, they have the liberty to buy and eat the meat that is sold at the market with a clear conscience. Why? Because they're not purchasing it through any sort of religious context. They're not consuming it at the temple. They're not taking part in a religious feast. They're just going down to the market. They're buying the, the meat. They're taking it home. Uh, they're putting it on their table. They're thanking God for it, and they're eating it. And Paul says, when you go to the market... You don't have to say, uh, excuse me, Mr. Butcher Man, uh, was this cow, was this ribeye previously sacrificed to Aphrodite? Paul says, don't worry about it. Eat asking no question for conscience' sake. Now, when Paul says to eat the meat, asking no question for conscience' sake, He's not telling them, don't ask so that you don't have to know, because if you knew, you might have a guilty conscience. God would not have us to live our Christian life on the basis of ignorance. Uh, ignorance is not bliss, neither is ignorance an excuse for sin. If you're doing something that's sinful, it's still sinful whether you realize it's sinful or not. You understand? So some would interpret this to say, well, don't ask the butcher where it came from 
Because as long as you don't know it was sacrificed to idols, you're fine. But if you know that, it, it, it might convict your conscience. Uh, kind of like, uh, has anyone ever come up to you? And, and they say, I've got to tell you something. And they start to tell you, and you stop them and say, I don't even want to know. I don't, even, don't even tell me that. Because if you knew, you might be morally obligated to do something about it, and it's easier to just be ignorant. Well, that's not at all what Paul means here, okay? And by the way, that's not really a good practice for us to adopt in our Christian lives. Ignorance is not bliss, nor is it an excuse for sin. Rather, what Paul means here, what he tells the Corinthians, is that they don't have to concern themselves with investigating where the meat came from because it's not a matter of conscience. They had the Christian liberty to eat whatsoever meat was sold in the market, whether it was previously sacrificed to idols or not. Paul is essentially saying, even if you know that it was sacrificed to idols, there's no reason for you to feel guilty or condemned. Now, how do we reconcile this with Paul's previous dogmatic prohibition of eating idol meat at the temple? I mean, just a few verses earlier, Paul says, don't go to the temple and eat the meat. And now he's saying, but you can buy it in the market and take it home and eat it. Does it? You're contradicting yourself here, Paul. Well, wait a minute. Is he? Is he? Or is he driving at a deeper reality that goes beyond the physical meat? See, Paul reconciles it for us by quoting scripture to support his teaching. Look at verse 26. He quotes Psalm 24 in verse 1. And he says, this is why you can eat what's bought and sold in the shambles. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's a direct quote from Psalm 24 and verse 1. And it teaches us that God is the one who has made all things. He has made all plants. He has made all animals that are upon the earth. And when God made all of these things, he pronounced them as very good. And though sinful man can use God's good creation for evil, he does not have the ability to turn God's good creation into something that is inherently sinful. Immaterial food is not sinful. When the pagans gather to worship at their temple, there is no sin in the cow that's laying upon the altar. The sin is found in the wicked hearts of the pagans who come to commit idolatry and worship false gods. That's where the sin is. And it doesn't matter if they're sacrificing a cow or a chicken or a pig or a grain offering. The fact is they're committing idolatry. And for that matter, they don't even have to sacrifice anything. They're gathering to worship false gods. And Paul says, as a Christian, you don't go there even if they have an attractive meal to draw you in. But meat is just meat. It's just meat. And when it's taken to the public meat market, it loses all of its religious character. Therefore, Christians can purchase it, take it home, cook it, thank God for it, and eat it. And we say... Hallelujah. Now, in our context today, very few Americans have ever had to wrestle with the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. However, I'm one of the chosen few that has actually been able to have this privilege. Four years ago, I went to India. 
And before the trip, we talked about this very passage. Because in India, animal sacrifice to their pagan gods is still an ongoing practice. And even if the animal isn't sacrificed, sometimes it's dedicated to a certain god before it's butchered and sold. And they told us before we would go that there was a great possibility uh, that we would consume meat that before it made its way to the, to the market and then to the restaurant and then to our plate, uh, it, it would have been at one point in time used in some sort of religious, false, uh, idol worship ceremony. And you know what I said? Well, Paul says here that so long as I'm not going to the Hindu temple and sitting at their ceremony and partaking of the feast with them in a religious context, I am free to eat the meat. They even smuggled in beef in the Christian compound where we were staying. Praise the Lord. And we know that wasn't used in a religious ceremony. Uh, But we may struggle to see the relevance for us in this chapter. I want you to understand, I mentioned India because there are other Christians in other parts of the world where this chapter, in its original context, is still very much relevant. Thank God we live in a society where there's not a pagan temple in every corner offering up cows and pigs to false deities. But there are places in the world where that's exactly what's going on. And these poor Christians had to, <laughs> had to make the choice of whether or not they could eat that meat. But what is the application to you uh, if, if meat sacrificed to idols isn't, isn't exactly a common occurrence in your life, like the rest of this text, this context, I don't want you to just think, "Well, these chapters have nothing to do with me." No, let me let me see if I can apply this to your life. Could you imagine the bondage that you would be living in if you couldn't use anything that was invented by a pagan or previously used by one in a religious context? Could you imagine the the, the legalism that would be a reality in your life? And, and even I think this gets into the whole guilt by association. Uh, you know, the fundamentalist movement in the 50s and 60s, they preached against all sorts of things simply because they were associated with the wickedness of the culture. Uh, they preached against men having facial hair. Why? Because the hippie movement was going on. Forget the fact that Jesus had a beard. Uh, they preached against electric guitars and drums. Why? Because, well, the rock and roll scene was using electric guitars and drums. But let me say to you, just like a cow is completely sinless, it's, it's actually impossible for an animal to have sin in it, so too it is with an inanimate musical instrument. There's no sin in a set of drums. There's no sin in an electric guitar. Now, we could debate whether or not such instruments are proper to be used in the corporate worship of God, but to say that the instrument itself is sinful is absolutely ridiculous. That's what Paul is getting at here. Paul is saying, you take two cows, you take one that was previously sacrificed, you take one that wasn't, you butcher them, you put them on the meat market, there's no difference. Just buy them and eat them and enjoy them. The Bible is saying here that your conscience is free from such a burden. What God is concerned with is not simply your use of food or physical items, but that you keep yourself separate from pagan religious ceremonies and the sin of idolatry. That's what God's concerned with. Let me ask you this. Let me apply it in this way. Is it a sin to hold a beaded necklace and pray? Some of you see where I'm going with this, right? Well, no, it's not, right? Is there anything inherently sinful about 
I'm going to pray, and I'm just so I'm just just so happens I'm going to hold some beads while I pray. Well, there's nothing inherently sinful about that, but should you, as an evangelical Christian, do that? Considering that it is tied directly to false religion, you see what Paul is getting at here. You have the liberty in Christ to eat the meat. But even though, and here's where the the text kind of turns, even though Christians have this liberty, some weaker brethren may still not be able to partake of the meat with a clear conscience. And here's what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, whatever's sold in the shambles, eat it and enjoy it. And you weaker Christians that don't have the liberty to do it, you just need to grow up, you need to get over yourselves, you need to go down, you need to eat the meat. Paul doesn't say that at all. What does Paul say? Well, we'll see what he says in verses 27 and 28. Paul proceeds to lay out what the responsibility of the stronger brother is in such cases. And so now, not only is he transitioning in his thought, he's also introducing a second scenario. So we've seen the scenario of public markets, but now we're going to see the context of private meals. And this is where it gets hairy for us. So hang with me here as we get into verse 27. The Bible says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go. So Paul is shifting to a second miscellaneous employment of this principle. And he's dealing with meals in a private home. What should you do as a Christian if you are invited by an unbeliever to come over to their house for a meal? Practical stuff, right? Well, firstly... Under normal circumstances, we see here that we have the liberty to go. Because Paul says, if you be disposed to go, Paul is assuming that you are going to go to this meal and he's going to give you some instructions on what to do when you're there. Paul does not say, do not even eat at the home of unbelievers. You are only allowed to eat with fellow Christians. He doesn't say that. You need to be careful about that. Uh, because yes, there are some that, that teach a radical hyper doctrine of separation uh, that that says that we're, we're not even supposed to have any sort of social interaction with unbelievers, but let me remind you, our Lord ate with sinners. We'll get into the specifics as we keep going in this text. So what do you do when you get there? Well, Paul says, whatsoever is set before you, eat it. Literally, in the original, it says everything that is set before you. <laughs> eat it. Asking no question for conscience' sake. Right now, and and let me point this out, verses 25, 26, and 27, he's talking about your conscience. Your conscience. Do not let your conscience be bothered. Go to their home and eat whatever they put before you. You don't have to worry about where the food came from. If they offered it to an idol on Tuesday, and then they brought it home and fed it to you on Thursday, you have the liberty to eat it so long as you're not eating it in any sort of religious context. Right? Again, it's, it's important for us to see the shift that occurs. Because the feast of verse 27 is completely different than the temple feasts that were mentioned earlier in the chapter. If an unbeliever invites you to the temple to take part in a religious ceremony with him, you do not have the liberty to go. But if an unbeliever invites you to his home for a meal with no religious context, you do have the liberty to go 
if you so desire. Paul says, if you be disposed to go, which I think also means that we have the liberty to say, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> Let me illustrate this another way and see if I can apply it to something a modern-day evangelical is much more likely to encounter. Question. If your Roman Catholic friend invites you to come over to their house for a meal, can you go? Sure. Absolutely. Enjoy their company. Question, if a Roman Catholic invites you to join him at Saturday's Mass, do you have the liberty to go? Absolutely not. You say, well, I know that transubstantiation is false. I don't believe in what they're doing. I'm not following their teachings. I, I, I don't follow after the Pope. What's the harm in me going? Remember what Paul said earlier. It doesn't matter what you intended to do. What matters is what you in fact did. The Christians at the church of Corinth did not intend to have fellowship with demons. That was not their goal. They did not set out saying, let's go down to the pagan temple and hop in bed with demons. They were just accepting the invitation of an unbelieving friend. Now, I want to be clear, lest any of you misunderstand me to say that you're never allowed to don the doors of any church except this one or one like this one. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a line that crossed when a so-called church denies the gospel and the truth of Christianity to the point that we cannot in good conscience participate in their worship. Are you going to go and sit and sing and pray and observe rituals and ceremonies with those who do not worship the true living God of the Bible? So if your Catholic friend or your Muslim friend or your Hindu friend or your Church of Christ friend invites you to their house for a meal, go in peace. Enjoy the fellowship. Make sure you share the gospel while you're there. You can attend their social functions, but you cannot, in good conscience and in good faith, attend their religious functions. You just can't do it. This precept also applies, and perhaps is even more relevant in our day, to lifestyles that are grossly sinful and immoral. This principle of, of we can reach out, and we don't have to be hyper-separatists, but when it comes to our soul and our in sphere of influence, we have to keep ourselves unspotted from sin. Mom, dad, your adult child who's an unbeliever and who's living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, because that's that seems to be the favorite pastime of unbelievers today is to fornicate. It's November and they invite you over for Thanksgiving. Can you go? Absolutely. Well, what if it's November? And you've invited them over, and they're coming in, and they want to spend the weekend at your house in the same guest room. If you won't condone the idolatries of the Catholic Mass by going down to the cathedral with your Catholic friend and attending their ceremony, why would you condone fornication by providing a convenient place for it to be committed in your own house? That's the principle that Paul is laying out here. And as uncomfortable as that often is for us, that's the instruction. That's the directive. 
We, we as Christians, we are allowed to go out into the world and we are allowed to eat and fellowship and work with and be kind to and invite and enjoy the, the company of unbelievers. But when doing so would mean that we compromise our own souls or our own religious convictions or our own faith and conscience, we have to say, no, that's a bridge too far. I cannot go there with you. Are there caveats to Paul's instruction in verse 27? Are there caveats to this instruction that you can go to the home of an unbeliever for a meal or a social function? Well, yes, there are, and he states one of them in verse 28. But before we get to verse 28, let me give you an important one. Verse 27 states that you have the liberty to eat in the homes of unbelievers. It does not say that you have the liberty to hang out with unbelievers who are a very bad influence on you. Paul will later say in chapter 15 and verse 33, bad company corrupts good morals. If an unbeliever invites you to their home for a meal, you are at liberty to go, unless, of course, you know that that evening will be filled with coarse language, vulgar vulgar joking, unholy entertainment, and temptations for you to join you in their sins. In which case, Paul says, it is wiser for you to politely decline the invitation. I'm sure many of you can testify. After the Lord saved you, there were certain places you just didn't go anymore. You didn't hang out there anymore. There were certain friends that you just didn't spend much time with anymore. Why? Because you you were holier than thou, and you were better than, and uh, you were, were suddenly enlightened, and you just had no love for them anymore? No, it's because you realize that you, you, you serve a different God now. You have different affections in your heart. But yet, you still struggle with your flesh. And you cannot give it an occasion. There are some people that I know, that I know that if I went and spent a weekend with them, I'd come back talking like them, walking like them, and acting like them. You say, that sounds pretty weak of you. Yes, well, newsflash, I'm very weak. Very weak. And you are too. Did, did, did he not tell us, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall? Right. If an unbeliever invites you over, go, if you have the liberty to do so. But the caveat is, if you realize that you, you're going to put yourself in a place of temptation in which you're likely to fall, it's best to not enter into such a sketchy and dangerous situation. You don't ever have the liberty to subject yourself to immorality. By the way, God has never authorized so-called missionary dating or missionary friendships either. Listen, no single Christian boy has ever dated a cute, unbelieving girl because he just really wanted to share the gospel with her. That's, That's a wonderful excuse that we get to tell ourselves. But how many times have we used that excuse with a friendship or with an event and we didn't share the gospel at all? We went to go enjoy what everybody else was enjoying. Yes, Jesus did eat with sinners and publicans, but no, he did not hang out with them and enjoy and uh, include himself in their sins. God never gives us the liberty to place ourselves in a situation that is morally compromising. Uh, Here's another caveat while we're at it. I told you this text was hairy. Because good preaching preaches the Bible 
consistent with itself. Another caveat is this. This allowance, and by the way, most of these caveats come right from 1 Corinthians. This allowance does not apply to false brothers who have been excommunicated or disciplined from the church. How do I know that? Well, turn back with me to chapter 5. I want you to see this in chapter 5. Remember, Paul has just said, you have the liberty to go to the house of an unbeliever for a meal. But he also says, chapter 5 and beginning at verse 9, notice he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I told you not to have any company or fellowship with these, these sinners, but I didn't mean the sinners of the world. Because if I meant the sinners of the world, you'd have to go out of the world to find anybody to fellowship with. He's giving us the caveat. Then what do you mean, Paul? Who are we not supposed to have fellowship with? We're not supposed to go to their dinner parties. They're not invited to our dinner parties. We cannot continue on in a peaceful, uh, harmonious relationship with them. Verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Could Paul be any more clear? And then he says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judges. Paul says, I'm not telling you not to fellowship with sinners out in the world. Don't be surprised when sinners in the world act like sinners in the world. But we cannot continue on in a harmonious, peaceful relationship with those who are called brothers or who call themselves brothers, but live a life that testifies against their profession of faith. Why is it that you can share a meal with a run-of-the-mill unbeliever, but not a false convert who was disciplined out of the church? Because when you go to an unbeliever's house, it's, it's not a Christian, it's never made a profession of being a Christian, and they know that you are a Christian, and they know that they're not a Christian, there's no deception there. There's no deception there. I believe it, you don't. Uh, back last year, before I left the job I was working, there was a, a man who was hired on, and uh, he was very vocal about his atheism and about his unbelief in God. And you know what we did? We got together and we went out. And we talked. Why? Because he knew I was a Christian. He knew what I was about. I knew what he was about. No deception there. But when you continue to have fellowship with a false brother and carry on a relationship with them as if they'd never been disciplined from the church, you're furthering the deception that they're living in. And by your unwillingness to obey the commands of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and to call them to repentance, you're essentially approving of the way they're living. What are you telling them? When, when the church, as a corporate body, puts them out of the church for the sinful life they're living and their refusal to repent, and then you uh, go to their barbecue next Friday, what you're telling them is, yeah, 
I know the church made that decision, but they're not they're not right all the time. They got this one wrong. We can we can continue on as if nothing ever happened. And that might sound harsh, that might sound cruel, but what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that that's actually the loving thing to do. Is when you see them and they they say, "Hey, we're having a block party next week. Come on over." You say, "I would love to." And I miss your fellowship, but brother, I am so I'm so worried for the state of your soul. I'm so sorry for the condition of your life. And all I can do is just urge you to repent and urge you to to receive the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And until that happens, there's just not going to be much of a fellowship and a relationship that can be had here. Because I do not want to have your blood on my hands. I, I do not want to be guilty of your condemnation. So there's a second caveat. Can you go to the home of an unbeliever? Yes. So long as you know that you're not going to put yourself in any morally compromising situation and you're not going to further the deception of someone who is self-deceived into thinking they're a Christian. Well, there's a third caveat, and it goes back to the, the theme of our text, that of Christian liberties. Notice in verse 28, Paul says this. Paul says, But if any man say unto you, This is offered and sacrificed unto idols. Now, here is the phrase that that really troubled me. Because I I had to to figure out, who is this any man? Is this any man, does this refer to the unbelieving host that brought you over? Or does it refer to a Christian brother or sister that has joined you at this meal? Okay, I believe that this is referring to a Christian brother or sister that is joining you at this meal. Here's why I believe that. Thankfully, our King James Version maintains the plural pronouns in verse 27. This is what helped me to figure out what he was talking about. You see it in the Greek, but you don't see it in modern English versions. But in the King James, you see in verse 27, he says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast. That's a plural pronoun. So it's not just an individual in the church. It's multiple people in the church. Bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go. So multiple Christians are going to this feast. And by the way, there's a word of wisdom right there. Uh, There is a such thing as strength in numbers. And if you know that you're going to be the only believer at whatever event you're going to, Paul doesn't say not to go, but he does say, consider it. Think about it. So here's what's going on in verse 28. You're at the home of an unbeliever, and another Christian is with you. And we know that this is another Christian, verse 27. And somehow, this brother that's with you, he finds out that the meat being served was sacrificed to idols. Now, that doesn't bother you. You you know that you have the liberty to partake. So you say, whatever, I'm I'm fine with that. But it does bother your brother. He, He says to you, you know, I was just saved out of that idolatry. I, 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 just a couple months ago, I was at the temple of Aphrodite. I was participating in the feasts. And brother, I, just, I can't eat that meat because it just it, it bothers my conscience. And for me to eat that meat, I would feel that I am sinning if I would eat that meat. What should you do? What does Paul say? Verse 28. He says, Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. Now, if that brother wasn't there, 
Or if that brother didn't have that, that issue in his conscience, you can eat it and you can enjoy it. But when you see that that brother is convicted by that meat, Paul says, don't eat it for the sake of your brother. Even though you know that you have the right to eat the meat, Paul says that you ought to abstain. Why? Because you don't have the right to needlessly offend your brother. By the way, this is a needless offense. Because we don't adopt the principle that we should never ever do anything that any Christian in the world might find to be offensive. It's not the context. The context is two Christians, really in this context, from the same local church, and it's a needless offense. When you flaunt your liberties with no concern for your brother's conscience, you take something that by itself is right and you make it very wrong. It would be better for you to offend the unbelieving host by refusing to eat the meal that he has prepared. He brings out this this meal. He brings out this spread. We all know how this feels, right? Take away the religious context for a moment. You ever been at somebody's house and they serve a meal and you absolutely despise whatever it is they served, but you force yourself to eat it because you don't want to offend them? Some of you are looking at me like you've never done that. I know you've done that. Well, Paul says, it would be better for you to offend the host by saying, I'm sorry, you know, I know you've put in work into this meal, but I'm just not going to eat your shepherd's pie because the beef that is in there, you sacrificed that at the temple. And I'm not going to eat that because my brother, it's, it's a condemnation to his conscience. It would be better for you to offend the host than it would be for you to offend your brother's conscience. And as your unbelieving host, this is, this is the point. As your unbelieving host sees the unconditional love that you have for your brother, perhaps he will say, my, how they love one another. My, how loyal these Christians are to one another. My, how they submit themselves to one another and consider each other before themselves. This is a level of of love and submission and, and a bond that I've never seen it before. On the other hand, there is no poorer testimony that you could give before unbelievers than to openly disrespect and ridicule your brother in front of unbelievers. You, you don't go to that, that unbeliever's house and eat the meat and, and then say, yeah, I'm sure glad that Brother Joe from church isn't here because I'll tell you what, he's a stick in the mud. I can't stand being around that guy because you know he has a problem with the meat. You don't do that because you love him and you respect him. And if your brother has scruples about eating the meat, it's not your job, by the way, to give him a theological lecture in front of an unbeliever. It's one of the reasons I just got so fed up with Facebook, I just got off of it. What kind of testimony are we giving to the world when we get in the comment sections and tear each other up and argue with one another and even call each other names? The world is watching you, Christian. What are they seeing? It's your job to demonstrate and manifest a respect and a Christ-like love towards your brothers and sisters. When you mock 
and belittle the weaker brethren in front of unbelievers, you are giving them a beachhead to mock and belittle the church of Christ. There's an even broader application here, and that is be careful of how you talk about other Christians in front of lost people. What would you think about a man that any time he was away from his wife, he was just always complaining about her? Just, just tearing her up, griping, moaning, complaining. She does this wrong. She does this wrong. She, she's, she does this wrong. She's not doing this like I asked her to. She, she, on and on. What would you think about a man like that? You think, you are a miserable man. You have no love for your wife. What do you think unbelievers think when we talk about our churches that way? And when we talk about other Christians that way? What do you think children think when mom and dad go home and eat the preacher for lunch and then they're surprised when those children grow up and they're not Christians? Well, ask yourself this question. At your job, in your family, because every Christian does, you talk about the church that you go to. You're asked questions about it. Is the, the way you talk about your church, if an unbeliever were to hear you talk about your church, would they want to visit? Or would they say, man, every Monday morning he comes in and talks about the latest argument that he's had. Man, every, every Tuesday afternoon he calls and he just talks about the latest fight that they had. I don't want to go to that church. So Paul says, our ultimate allegiance, even if we disagree with him, that's the thing. It's so easy to be respectful and kind when we agree, right? But Paul says our ultimate allegiance is not to the unbelieving host, but to our brother. To our brother. And then at the end of verse 28, Psalm 24 and verse 1 is quoted again. And this is a textual variant here. Many scholars believe that Paul quoted 24.1 at the end of verse 26, but not at the end of verse 28. Uh, John Gill argues that it's, it's irrelevant. And if it is inspired, the, the end of verse 28, the sense is that God has provided so many things for us to eat that there's no reason for us to eat something that would needlessly offend our brother. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If your brother's offended by the meat, don't eat the meat. Find something else to eat. Yes, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4, for every creature that, uh, of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, but that is not a license to violate the conscience of your brother. The strong must exercise patience and humility with the weak, and the weak must exercise patience and humility with the strong. But see, as a Christian, you ought never entice your brother to violate his conscience. For Paul says in Romans 14, 23, He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. And whatsoever is not a faith is sin, Paul says. So these are the the two applications of public markets and private meals. And thirdly, we, we see finally in verses 29 and 30, we see that there is a personal mindset. There is a personal mindset that Paul instructs us to have. This is the attitude 
and determination that we must have if we are to employ this principle in any and all situations that may arise. Notice what he says in verse 29. Conscience, I say, and not thine own, but of the other. Earlier in the text, in verses 25, 26, and 27... Uh, Paul was talking about your conscience. He was saying, don't eat it for the sake of your conscience. But now in 29, he tells us that in verse 28, there was a shift in his thinking, and he was now talking about the conscience of the brother that you were eating the meal with. Conscience? Not your own. Why not your own? Because your conscience wasn't bothered at the meal. You, you could have eaten that meat, and your conscience was fine. It was your brother that had the issue. And so he says, don't eat, not because of your own conscience, but because of your brother's conscience. It's not that you abstain for the sake of yourself. What Paul is doing here is he's confronting selfish mentality. And he's giving us a right mindset to have. Now, how many times have we heard someone give as a justification for doing something? Well, it doesn't bother me. You heard that before? Well, it doesn't bother me. Well, newsflash, whether it bothers you or not is not all that matters. What about your brother? Remember, in the Christian life, not everything revolves around you. Especially as the stronger brother. You ought to do all that you can to honor the conscience of those who are weak. Because if he learns from you that it's okay to violate his conscience, what's going to happen down the road when his conscience convicts him about something that he does not have the liberty to do, but he remembers, oh, It was all right for me to violate my conscience in that area. Never get in the habit and never become comfortable with violating your conscience. Never. Yes, conform your conscience to the word of God, but never intentionally violate your conscience. And if your brother says to you, I get it. I see your justification Biblically, I get it. I understand. You have the liberty to do this. I don't think you're sinning when you do it. I understand why you do it. But for me, my conscience just won't allow it. Don't encourage him to violate that. Because God has given us our consciences for our own good. And it is much better to be too scrupulous than it is to be too careless. And then Paul says in verse 30, this is another hard verse to understand. He says, For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if by grace I be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for them which give thanks? Well, to properly interpret the Bible, you have to follow the argument. What has Paul been saying thus far? Some say that Paul is quoting an objection that the Corinthians might give to what he has just written. Paul says, don't eat for your brother's sake. And then the Corinthians might respond with something like, well, why is my liberty judged by someone else's conscience? However, that doesn't really flow in the text. Number one, because Paul does not give uh, any sort of rebuttal to that objection. And it's not like Paul for him to just quote an objection and not answer it. Rather, we should understand verses 29 and 30 as an explanation of what has just preceded. Why should we abstain for the sake of our brother? Because Paul says, you do not want your liberty to become an occasion to be condemned by another man's conscience. The word judged there can be translated as condemned. Paul is saying, your liberty, don't let your liberty 
be something that is condemned by your brother's conscience. We don't want our liberty to be a stumbling block. And then in verse 31, or then in verse 30, he says, for if I by grace, what does that mean? That means if I partake with thanksgiving. What Paul is saying, in other words, is you're sitting down with this meat and you're praying over it, right? You're praying a blessing on your meal. But your brother is seeing that and your prayer is actually putting a stumbling block before his conscience. Paul says, don't get in a situation like that. Paul is here calling the strong to be more considerate of the weak and to demonstrate a Christ-like love towards them. And the most wise, enlightened, and mature Christian is not the one who most boldly asserts his right, but he is the one who is most yielding and considerate towards his brother in matters of indifference. Love, patience, and meekness are better than brazen indulgence at the expense of your brother's conscience. Well, we still have half of this text to go, and our time has expired. And we will see, uh, as we dig deeper into the why of this principle of limiting our liberties. And he's going to give us, Paul's going to give us several reasons why we are uh, to do what he's calling us to do, which is to limit them. And then he's going to give us a supreme example that we are to follow. But for now, let me just leave you with this question. What are some ways in your own life that you could be more considerate of your brothers and sisters? Now, the answer is probably not, well, I guess I should stop eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? Because it's not an issue you face. Maybe it is. You know, Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples if we have love one for another. Mm -hmm. And if the thought of setting aside your rights and liberties for your brother seems begrudgingly miserable, it could be that you're not a true disciple at all. And if you see in yourself a besetting selfishness that tells you, I can do whatever I want to do because I have the right to do it, and if they have a problem with it, they can go kick rocks. You need to experience the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Only a born-again heart, only a regenerate heart can truly seek the good of others before it seeks itself. And Christ has died on Calvary's cross to give you a new heart. And only when a church is comprised of those kinds of hearts will it exemplify the gospel and exalt Jesus Christ to all those who see it. Well, may God bless our study of this text and give us grace to finish it out next Lord's Day. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for helping me to get through this passage of Scripture, and I trust that it was edifying and beneficial. Lord, would you help us to apply these principles to our own daily lives? Father, I pray that you would help me to be more considerate of others, that I wouldn't always think about myself and what I have the right to do, and that I would never flaunt my liberties in the face of brothers when I know that those brothers have issues with those liberties and that it insults and offends their conscience. May we be meek and love, and loving, and Christ-like, and not selfish, seeking indulgence. Lord, glorify your Son in us, sanctify us according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.